Good morning. The scripture reading today is taken from the book of 1 Samuel. I'll be reading um, from chapter 19, verses 1 through 17, and then 30 to 34, and finally 41 and 42. If you'd like to follow along, you can do so on page 6 of the bulletin. Then David fled from Naoth at Ramah and went to Jonathan and asked, What have I done? What is my crime? How have I wronged your father that he is trying to kill me? Never, Jonathan replied. You are not going to die. Look, my father doesn't do anything, great or small, without letting me know. Why would he hide this from me? It is not so. But David took an oath and said, Your father knows very well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he has said to himself, Jonathan must not know this, or he will be grieved. Yet as surely as the Lord lives, and as you live, there is only a step between me and death. Jonathan said to David, Whatever you want me to do, I'll do for you. So David said, look, tomorrow is the new moon feast, and I'm supposed to dine with the king. But let me go and hide in the field until the evening of the day after tomorrow. If your father misses me at all, tell him, David earnestly asked my permission to hurry to Bethlehem, his hometown, because an annual sacrifice is being made there for his whole clan. If he says, very well then your servant is safe. But if he loses his temper, you can be sure that he is determined to harm me. As for you, show kindness to your servant, for you have brought him into a covenant with you before the Lord. If I am guilty, then kill me yourself. Why hand me over to your father? Never, Jonathan said, if I had the least inkling that my father was determined to harm you, wouldn't I tell you? David asked, who will tell me if your father answers you harshly? Come, Jonathan said, let's go in, out into the field. So they went there together. Then Jonathan said to David, I swear by the Lord, the God of Israel, that I will surely sound out my father by this time the day after tomorrow. If he is favorably disposed towards you, will I not send you word and let you know? But if my father intends to harm you, may the Lord deal with Jonathan, be it ever so severely if I do not let you know and send you away in peace. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. But show me unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness as long as I live, so that I may not be killed. And do not, ever, and do not ever cut off your kindness from my family, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord call David's enemies to account. And Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath of love for him, because he loved him, as he loved himself. 
Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse and rebellious woman, do I know, don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother who bore you? As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now send somebody to bring him to me, for he must die. Why should he be put to death? What has he done? Jonathan asked his father. But Saul hurled his spear at him to kill him. Then Jonathan knew that his father intended to kill David. Jonathan got up from the table in fierce anger. On that second day of the feast, he did not eat because he was grieved at his father's shameful treatment of David. After the boy had gone, David got up from the south side of the stone and bowed before Jonathan three times with his face to the ground. Then they kissed each other and wept together, but David wept the most. Jonathan said to David, go in peace, for we have sworn a friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, saying the Lord is witness between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. Then David left and Jonathan went back to the town. We're continuing in our study of the life of David, the great king of Israel from the Old Testament. And we are looking at this great passage. It tells us a lot about the relationship shared between David and Jonathan. Let's pray together before we continue. God, we're asking that you would come and be present now. That you would be here as you already have been throughout this service already, but now in a special way through your word. That you would speak to our hearts. That you would give life to us through your words. Because your words are words of life. So we expect something of you. You invite us to do that. To expect of you great things. Because of your promise. So we look to you in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was a kid, maybe about seven or eight or nine years old, I had some imaginary friends. Don't worry, I had real friends too. But maybe it was the product of a very active imagination, or maybe it was the result of growing up with two older sisters and therefore needing to find creative ways to play on my own. Whatever the reason, these guys had names. Tom, Johnny Watsonberger, to name a few. And we would pretend to be FBI agents or reenact scenes from Star Wars or The Karate Kid. Or we would compete as teammates in imaginary basketball tournaments in my front yard. Of course, I would get to take and always make the winning shot every time. After all, they were good friends. And the point of sharing this, of course, is to make you feel sorry for me so you'll be my friend, right? No, the point is to say that there was a point in my life when it was a lot easier 
to admit how much I wanted and needed friends. I may no longer create imaginary ones, but I'm no less in need of them today than I was then. How about you? David and Jonathan were the dearest of friends, which was strange given the circumstances. Jonathan was King Saul's son, heir to the throne in Israel. But God had rejected Saul as king, and David, not Jonathan, would one day replace him. Saul's envy of David had grown violent, in fact, and on several occasions he had tried to kill him which is why verse 1 of today's passage opens up with David fleeing from Saul. Almost strangely, David is still loyal to Saul. He lives in Saul's house, but he's reluctant to leave. But he knows he may need to do so simply to save his own life. Jonathan isn't fully convinced of his father's murderous intentions. After all, it's still his dad that we're talking about. And so he and David devise a way to sort of test Saul's heart once and for all. And so the plan that they devised was for David to intentionally miss an important new moon feast mentioned in verse 5. That's a religious festival where close associates of the king would be expected to attend. And in David's absence, David and Jonathan agreed that Saul's reaction to his absence would reveal a lot. As David suggests in verse 7, if Saul says, very well, then your servant is safe. But if he loses his temper, you can be sure that he is determined to harm me. Well, things didn't go well. Saul's anger flared up not only towards David, but also towards Jonathan. He, he screams, send someone to bring him to me, for he must die. And verse 33 concludes, then Jonathan knew, then he knew that his father intended to kill David. David needed to leave town. David needed to run. As David hid in a field, Jonathan sent him covert signals with a bow and arrow. Then finally, with a rush of emotion and with grief, the two friends said their last goodbye. David, we're told, bowed down before Jonathan three times. And it says in verse 41, with his face to the ground, they kissed each other and wept together, but David wept the most. Jonathan said to David, go in peace, for we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord. And David left. David and Jonathan's relationship stands out, doesn't it? It stands out as one of the most moving examples of friendship in the entire Bible. It's a powerful portrait, a a vision of friendship that, if we're honest, is almost foreign to us. Uh, It's a vision of friendship that you might call covenant friendship. We're better acquainted with the alternative, consumer friendship. You know, friendship that works for me, that's all about me, and that doesn't demand too much of me. Don't you dare. 
But biblical friendship is covenant friendship. It's what scripture has in mind when Proverbs 18.24 tells us there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. It's what Ruth and Naomi shared in their commitment to each other. It's the special bond that Jesus himself held with Lazarus and the Apostle John, each of whom were described as the one whom Jesus loved, specially loved. It's that form of love that Jesus had in mind when he said in John 15, 13 to his disciples, greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. There's no greater love than this. Whether you're single, dating, divorced, or even married because marriage cannot meet all of your relational needs, whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, an extrovert because you can be surrounded by people and still be a stranger to friendship, you know. Whether you're young and restless or retired and restless, friends, covenant friendship is what we long for, is what we, as Christians, as human beings, deeply need. But what is it? This passage gives us an idea, a little glimpse. It offers us five marks of covenant friendship. It's not an exhaustive presentation or a definition of friendship, but it's what we find in this one story. Five marks of covenant friendship. First of all, covenant friendship is promised friendship. Covenant friendship is promised. You see, consumer friendship is non-committal. I'm a pro at that. It's a relationship in which, well, we'll invest in, but only when it's convenient. Like when I need you, but not when you need me. Consumer friendship is based on the popular lie that you're happiest when you're least tied down. So don't y'all tie me down. Wesley Hill, a scholar and author, writes a, a very helpful book called Sp Spiritual Friendship. And he comments on this aspect of our flaws and friendship like this. I'd like to add one to the list of mythologies that obscure our view of friendship. It's the myth of what we might term simply freedom. The myth that the less encumbered and entangled I am or the less accountable and anchored I am to a particular relationship, the better I am able to find my truest self and secure real happiness. And so it's not hard to see how it strikes at the root of friendship. If your deepest fulfillment is found in personal autonomy, then friendship is more of a liability than an asset. Is that how you've been experiencing friendship, disposed towards friendship, towards freedom? But notice how David and Jonathan go in the opposite direction, binding themselves to each other, sealing their bond with promises. In verses 8 and 16, we're told that they made a covenant with each other. 
These are friends making a covenant. That's an ancient term for a promised relationship held accountable before God. They take oaths to each other, almost as if they are in court. Verse 3 and 17 tells us Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him because he loved him as he loved himself. Multiple times they use the language of swearing, especially in verse 42 when Jonathan declares, we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord. And twice in verses 8 and 14, the appeal is made, show kindness to your servant. Show me unfailing kindness as long as I live. This great word chesed in the Hebrew, which can also be translated steadfast love. It's a word that combines two ideas, love and loyalty. It's a covenantal word. It's a binding word. It's a promising word, you see. Covenant friendship is committed promise-based and promised-bound friendship. It's friendship that endures even when it's inconvenient. Though it's rich in feeling, it's not based on our feelings. It's a bond that's sealed by vows, whether implicitly or explicitly. Covenant friendship is vowed friendship, and so that means it's viewed as permanent. How much do you view your friendships as a permanent relationship? Permanent rather than disposable. It's promised, so it's treated as a priority. Would you ever move to another city or stay and forego a job in another city because of your commitment to a friend? As you're starting to hear, this is an invitation that almost begins to make us think of friendship more along the lines of how we typically view marriage, isn't it? As Richard Morrison, an English scholar and diplomat in the 16th century, once wrote, friendship should be like a marriage. For better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, till death depart, that might sound radical to you, even impossible, but don't you know, friends, and do you see, it's biblical. It used to be how the church used to think about friendship in earlier centuries, but we've lost it in recent generations in favor of the consumer version. Covenant friendship is promise. Secondly, covenant friendship is sacrificial. It's sacrificial. Of course, most of us prefer to remain consumers, not givers. These are the terms of relationships for us usually. We can be friends as long as it doesn't cost me too much. Covenant friendship refuses to control the terms and the costs of the relationship. Doesn't draw lines. I'll meet needs. I'll meet your needs, but not needs that are too costly, too many, or too long. I'll meet needs, but don't you dare turn needy. Did you hear, however, what Jonathan said to David in verse 4? Whatever you want me to do, I'll do for you. 
Have you said that to a friend lately? Whatever the cost, blank check of love because of how Jesus has loved me, so will I love you. As we saw last week, Jonathan gave up his royal prerogatives to David. We also see Jonathan giving up his security before a violent father to associate with David. He sacrifices his peace, his peaceful and privileged life in order to bind himself to his friend. What would it look like for you or me to give up peace or privilege to be someone's committed, covenanted friend? Because covenant friendship is sacrificial. As Wes Hill again reminds us, friendship in Christian terms is all about giving up oneself for the sake of love and embracing the cost of such radical loyalty. Friendship, in a word, is cruciform, shaped like a cross. Covenant friendship is not only promised and sacrificial, it's also sympathetic. Sympathetic. Sympathy is a word that means to suffer with someone. Sympathy means identifying with a person so intimately that their pain becomes your own. Verse 17 tells us that Jonathan loved David as he loved himself. Which means he, he, he sort of climbed into the skin of David. So great was his love. So great was his friendship. That he felt in his own feet the sore feet of the fleeing David. That he heard the threats of, of Saul with the ears of David. He felt the fear and the discouragement of David with the heart of David in his own heart. He saw the burning anger of Saul and the flying spear of Saul with the eyes of David. He loved him as he loved himself. He identified with and he suffered with his friend. In fact, in verse 33, Saul gets so angry at his son, he hurls his spear at Jonathan to kill him. Just like Saul had done to David in chapter 18. And so one commentator, Joyce Baldwin, makes this helpful observation. She says, here, there's a merging of identities and roles in the portrayal of David and Jonathan. You see, solidarity in the identity as the object of Saul's fury, that was friendship for Jonathan. In covenant friendship, you allow yourself to be accused and blamed for things your friend is unjustly accused and blamed for. You bear injustice, even the threat of violence, together because friendship is solidarity. Friendship is to take on someone else's suffering as your own. Covenant friendship is sympathetic. It's also affectionate. Covenant friendship is affectionate. You know, it's interesting when you think about friendship or relationships in general. It's really true that modern life has pushed friendship to the margins of society and modern life. It's no longer important. It's no longer the central thing. Well, what is? 
Well, a few years ago in the Boston Globe, there was an, a column that was written, highly acclaimed and uh, fast distributed, really around the world. A young woman who was basically lamenting what happens to friendships once your friends begin to get married. And she ponders this from this angle and that, and I actually commend it to you. It's a helpful uh, reflection piece. But I want to point out what she concludes towards the end. She says this very poignantly, provocatively. However much our society might pay lip service to friendship, the fact remains that the only love it considers important, important enough to merit a huge public celebration, is romantic love. Isn't that true? The way in which we have sidelined what the Bible is telling us is the most critical, important, significant form of human love. Not romantic love, but rather friendship love. And yet we know nothing about how to celebrate it when we find it and have it or grieve it when we lose it. But another effect of this, of course, is that this framing of all relationships in terms of romantic love has also made us a little weird about physical affection. That we don't know how to give and take various forms of expression of affection and love and friendship without overinterpreting or getting weird or suspicious or insecure. But look at David and Jonathan, verse 41. As they were saying goodbye, they kissed each other and wept together, but David wept the most. What would, in your covenant friendship, expressions of physical affection and commitment and promised relationship and vowed friendship look like? You don't have to kiss each other. You don't have to. <laughs> that was, of course, a very culturally appropriate form of friendship affection shared in that day. You don't have to kiss, but it does say we need to express our commitment to each other through human, namely physical, means. As Paul says in the New Testament, greet each other Greet one another with a holy kiss. Do you know that we were meant for physical touch? And I'm not saying go to your friends and violate their personal space. Take some wisdom and knowledge and self-understanding. But do you know friendships cannot live without it? Because we're called to the, a full exchange of our human personality, body, mind, and soul, giving of our hearts and our emotions, giving of our minds, giving of our words, giving of our gifts and our talents and our time, giving even of our physical presence before each other. What could this look like in your life? I've seen it in my life, mentors who've become friends, pulling me in for a, a warm handshake or a big bear hug how much that fed my heart and strengthened me in times of discouragement. Don't you need that? Don't you want to give that to one 
another. And speaking of, the point in all of this as we're looking at these different marks isn't simply to call you today to find a friend like this. The point is to call you to be a friend like this. But how? How do you become a purveyor, a propagator, a liver of covenant friendship like this? How do you do it? Well, that brings us to the fifth and final mark of covenant friendship. Number five, covenant friendship is God-centered. God is all over Jonathan and David's relationship. Did you notice how many times they invoke God as they promise themselves to each other? For example, in verse 8, David describes the covenant they made as a covenant with you before the Lord. And in verse 42, Jonathan says, We have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, saying the Lord is witness between you and me. Without a doubt, what they are seeking is God's accountability. But what they mean by accountability is simply this. It's another way of saying, God, I can't keep these promises unless you help me. God, I can't be a faithful friend without your faithfulness to me. I mean, do you approach friendship as if God is the glue that holds you and your friend together? As though God is the only one who can overcome that nasty, selfish consumer heart that we carry around with us every day. But there's more. Do you know that God is also the source of the very friendship love that you need to share as friends. He's the source of it. One of the most important phrases in this entire passage is found in verse 14. When Jonathan pleads to David, show me unfailing love like the Lord's kindness. Show me unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness. Here's how that phrase can also be rendered. Show me the unfailing kindness of the Lord. Show me what God has already given you as I show you what God has given me in faithfulness, in loyalty, in love, in affection, in sacrifice, in generosity, in friendship. After all, David and Jonathan know that God is the one who's most described in all scripture as offering unfailing kindness. He is the God of unfailing kindness. God is the one who makes covenant with us, with sinful, selfish people like us. And God is the one who promises to be for us such that James 2.23 tells us that because Abraham's, Abraham put his faith in God's promises, he was called a friend of God. You see, David and Jonathan had begun to encounter this God. They had begun to be changed by this God. Their consumer hearts had begun to be chipped away by the faithful friendship, the grace and loving kindness of their great God. This God whose unfailing love found full and perfect expression in the love of his son. Jesus, who came to us through covenant, not out, uh, out of convenience, 
and certainly not with a consumer heart. He was one who, though had equality with God, did not consider that something to be exploited, but lay it all down, all privilege, all peace, subjecting himself to humiliation out of love that he might draw near to us. Jesus, who identified with our humanity, indeed with our sin and selfishness, suffering with us, even for us, suffering mistreatment and even violence that he didn't deserve, that we did on the cross in our place. This Jesus who made it possible for us who, though by nature God's enemies, might be reconciled to him, made peace with the Father of Jesus himself. In our place for our happiness, holiness, and righteousness through the death of his son, so that Jesus might draw us in as reconciled enemies and now call us friends as Jesus turned to his disciples in John 15, 15, and he said, I no longer call you servants. Instead, I have called you friends. Today, let everyone who knows they've been found in Christ say, I am a friend of God. I am a friend of God. And dear friends, when you have experienced the friendship of God in Christ, the surprising grace and love and covenant kindness of this, the one who's called the perfect friend, will it not change your heart and give you power to be a friend like this? A covenant friend. The kind of friend we all long to have, and truly the kind of friend that we all long to be. Christian author and professor Paul Waddell has written this, Christians think differently about friendship because their understanding of friendship is rooted not in rosy accounts of human perfectibility, but in a God who remains ever faithful to us, and who never, no matter how egregious our failing, writes us out of the story of divine love. Let those who are in Christ confess today, I am a friend of God. Show friendship then, show friendship to one another through and with the unfailing friendship of the Lord. Will you give covenant friendship to one another. More than that, have you received covenant friendship from Jesus, the friend of sinners? The Lord give us grace as we grow in covenant friendship in community. Let's pray together. Jesus, there's no friend like you. There's no friend like you. And as you befriend us, Change our hearts by your spirit and teach us how to be friends of one another. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together.